Our scripture for our sermon tonight is Psalm 5, the fifth psalm, and page 9, the back of the Psalter hymnal provides our Lord's Day catechism lesson, Lord's Day 2. Psalm 5. Let's give our attention once more to God's holy word. Inerrant, infallible, the perfect word of God. Psalm 5. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Then if you would, uh, turn your attention to the catechism lesson, page 9. Lord's Day 2, let's read the answers together. Page 9, the back of the uh, Psalter hymnal. Huddleberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2, the beginning of part 1. Delineating for us man's misery. So we'll read the answers together with one voice, people of God. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? 
No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the question that we have tonight for our consideration is an important one for the spiritual lives of Christians, and it is this. Since we are miserably sinful, how is it that we can in any sense rejoice as we consider ourselves in relation to God? This question comes forth as you see uh, the, the two types of passages that uh, you may encounter in, in Scripture. The first passage is really the first part of Romans chapter 3, the first 20 verses or so, where you see eternal condemnation that, that is universal, that, that you cannot argue with, that you cannot stand against in any sense. And the second passage even little snippets of passages are the kinds of things that you see in, in Psalm 5, where you find David rejoicing at being welcomed into God's presence, and yet within the psalm, a recognition that no evil dwells with thee. So we have sort of that tension at work in, in Psalm 5. Now, as David considers evil and evildoers in Psalm 5, uh, it is those who stand against the Lord by an outward show of it. They come against the Lord's anointed, against David himself. And yet, David admits in the psalm that there is a sense in which he sees his own inadequacy to come before the Lord. And in fact, a lot of the naming of the evil and the sinfulness can, in a sense, be read as somewhat of a self-reflection and a prayer of David that he would not come to be known by those same sins. And we'll talk about that as, uh, as we walk through this passage together. Welcomed into the fellowship of God and, and rejoicing in his presence, is it enough to say that we are forgiven and, and redeemed and cleansed and that allows us to rejoice? Well, in a sense, yes, but isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that for many of us it's not that simple? We struggle to be joyful to be confident to enter into God's presence when we consider our own struggles with sin, when we consider our indwelling sin, when we consider the many difficulties that we have with it. We're tempted often more towards despair than to joy. But we have to, in order to, to think about these things rightly, we, we have to ask, well, how does Scripture speak about these things? How does Scripture speak about ourselves in relation to God? Indeed, God reminds us time and time and time again, doesn't he, that he is a, a loving father. So we're just saying, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Scripture paints a picture for us how we are to think about approaching God in worship, in his covenant, in fellowship with him. And, and as I've considered this, it seems to me that the, the, the number of passages, the number of verses that tend to give comfort, that tend to remind us of God's love towards us, his fatherly care for us, to me is striking when you consider the reality of our sinfulness. Really, what we find in Romans chapter 3, which is of course absolutely true, but the way that it describes our sinfulness 
uh, is you don't find those kinds of passages as much as you find affirmation of God's love and his care for us, his providential care for us. We find a little bit of that language in Psalm 5, that evil does not dwell with the Lord, that he abhors the evildoer, that the ones who speak lies will not stand before him. And yet, in the midst of that, what do we have? Rejoicing in, in the presence of God. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we are sinful and we are miserable. But Scripture allows us to be even still joyful as we come before the Lord and live in His presence. Does the Scripture or does the Bible, do the Scriptures relentlessly bang us over the head telling us that we are worthless and miserable and, and wretched? We can't deny our sinfulness, can we? And we must affirm still that God says again and again and again in his word that he treasures us as his people, that we are as a bride for Jesus, the bridegroom. I was reading uh, one of my favorite uh, theologians to read, Wilhelmus Abrakel, Dutch later Reformation writer, and wondering about this very thing this week. We have to affirm our sinfulness and, and the depth of our sinfulness and, and be aware of it. And yet at the same time, we have the, this uh, cluster of passages all throughout the Bible that says, rejoice, exalt in the Lord, be glad in Him. And sometimes that can be a difficult thing. So I'm reading Brockle, and here's what he's saying. He's saying this to both believers and unbelievers, probably with more of an eye towards unbelievers, but uh, showing universal sinfulness. And so he says this, Be it known to you and impress upon your heart that you are the most miserable creature on the face of the earth. If you could perceive but a glimmer of your misery, your hair would stand up straight from terror. Your eyes would never fail to weep. You would continually gnash your teeth and wring your hands. He goes on to say this, Your soul is a pool teeming with all manner of hateful, envious, wrathful, evil, impure, unrighteous, deceitful, and proud thoughts, by which you forget, depart from, and despise God. We say that in today's culture. You'll get laughed out of the room, won't you? All of that is true. It's true of unconverted persons, also in a sense true of believers as we continue to struggle with our indwelling sin that no longer rules over us but yet remains active within us. But if we only thought about things from this perspective, then even if we understood that God forgives us, we would struggle to grasp that God treasures us, that God loves us perhaps most importantly, that God is glad to have us as his children. That, that may be one of the more difficult questions for us to answer when we think about the depth of our sinfulness. Is God pleased that I am his child? Is he filled with great joy that I am his? And, and what Dr. Strange talked about several weeks ago when, uh, when he preached here in the evening you ask someone, does God love you? And we tend to answer yes. But for someone who may be struggling with something, he'll say, does God like you? And that kind of gets to the heart of the matter. Is God filled with joy to have you as his own? 
Psalm 5, verse 11 says this, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them either sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. So with this, we can perhaps uh, state a couple of truths and a question or two to guide us through this psalm. The first truth is this. We are all miserable sinners who cannot come into God's presence on our own. The second truth is, is this. God welcomes his people into his presence and says that they are to rejoice in being with him. So what is the secret ingredient that allows us to move from truth one to truth two? We are uh, miserably sinful and cannot come into God's presence on our own. And yet God welcomes us into his presence and says that we are to rejoice in doing so. The secret ingredient is the steadfast love of God as we see in verse 7. So our theme tonight is that a firm trust and a constant gaze upon the steadfast love of God allows us to be joyful in God's presence and also free from the the despair that we might feel if we only look at our sinfulness. So a firm trust and a constant gaze upon the steadfast love of God allows us to rejoice even in the midst of our great and deep sinfulness. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of this psalm. This psalm is such a wonderful picture of grace because of the the rhythm of grace that it gives to us as God's people. The psalm begins with what? It begins with a prayer, doesn't it? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. David is bringing something before God, bringing a prayer and a petition. That first verse tells us a couple of things. What is going on when you pray? What is, when, when many people pray, what is at work? And especially prayers of desperation. It's when people realize that things are out of their control. It's when people uh, sense a, a great deal of need and insufficiency. People pray the most when they feel the most insufficient. The word groaning here is a a rare word that occurs only here in Psalm 5 and in Psalm 39. It's a, a murmur, a whisper, a prayer that comes from desperation or even confusion. Uh, I consulted a, a Hebrew lexicon that actually made a connection to Romans 8 here, where it speaks of the groanings that are too deep for words. And the point that we take from this first verse is that there is a, a proper preparation in order to meet God, especially as God's people. For those who, who come to God as, as converts for the first time, the, the, the preparation is on the part of God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace does all the preparing to make a sinner ready to meet God. But as his people who live in his covenant grace, his covenant mercy, there's a, a proper way that we are to prepare to meet God. This is true for worship, isn't it? It's why we We quiet ourselves before worship begins. We ask for God to to be with us. We come before him with with reverence and awe. We we seek to understand his power and his majesty. David also shows us in verse 3 that God is the one upon whom we wait. He is the sovereign actor. We we wait for him to move. Everything within the, the realm of the spiritual and the realm of grace, it all belongs to God. 
and his power and his will. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. I watch and I wait. Why do we wait? Because God is the one who does as he pleases. The last thing that we notice is that this preparation of David is done with a view towards his own sinfulness. David's going to talk about evildoers in this psalm. And yet he does not think of himself as without sin. That's very clear, isn't it? He acknowledges his need for God by praying. He prepares a sacrifice. And so you have the the redemptive system of the Old Testament worship is brought into our minds. Now, not every single sacrifice was to make atonement. And yet the entire system of temple worship is built off of forgiving sin, cleansing sin, being reconciled to God. And so that's what's at work here as the psalmist says, I make a sacrifice for you and and I watch. I, I need to be cleansed before I come before you. David also acknowledges his sinfulness at the beginning of verse 4. As he says the word for, F-O-R, because. Because you are not a God who delights in wickedness. I, I prepare a sacrifice. I wait for you because you are not a God who delights in wickedness. So David, by faith, by grace, is distinguishing himself from those who live in the midst of their sinfulness and do not care. David will go on to speak of his enemies, those who stand against him. But he also prays because he reminds himself that by God's grace, what must he do? He must purge himself of the very same sins. Purge himself of the very same evil. Listen to the way one commentator puts it. The psalmist's reflection on such evildoers may indeed be a part of his own self-examination as he comes before God's presence. Knowing the nature of God and its implications for evil, he examines himself as he brings prayer to God. In other words, David reminds himself that God does not delight in evil because he does not think himself as if he is beyond the danger of evil. So what does David do? He prays. He repents. He prepares a sacrifice. It's a picture of preparation and reliance and repentance. This is the posture that we all need to have before God as we consider our sin and our misery. Preparation, reliance, and repentance. How do we know that we're sinful? How do we know that we don't measure up? Catechism tells us, doesn't it? The law of God. The law of God tells us so. And and how does the law of God tell us so? We think of the summary of the law, uh, the clear expression of the law in the Ten Commandments, and then the summary of the law as Jesus gives it to us. uh, The two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how does the law reveal to us our sinfulness? Do, Do you go through the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, and do you say yes or no to each one? Did you honor your father and your mother today? Did you steal anything today? Did you lie today? Yes or no? No, that's not the way that the law works, is it? Jesus says you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. So there's a spirituality to the law, isn't there? The law of God. 
It searches us and it reveals to us many different ways in which we are sinful. Not only do we seek to obey God in, in outward ways, in our external lives, which of course is important. What we do is, is extremely important to the Lord. But not only do we seek to obey God, but we also need to obey God from a heart that is joyfully submissive to Him. We need to obey God from a heart that is purely devoted to Him. We need to obey God from a heart that is singularly oriented towards His glory. We need to obey God from a heart that is willing to acknowledge His supremacy in all things. We need to obey God from a heart that always yearns for greater love and devotion and submission to Him. When you think about it that way, what do we see? We see that our, our efforts are so half-hearted sometimes. Everything that we do is so clearly insufficient. One theologian puts it this way, God's law is spiritual, requiring internal as well as external obedience. It reaches the understanding, the will, the affections with all the other faculties of the soul, as well as all the gestures, words, and actions of the body. It extends not only to external appearances, words, and works, but to the dispositions, thoughts, principles, motives, and designs of the heart, and requires the spiritual performance of both internal and external obedience. The law of God searches us. And so we carefully approach God with an honest view of ourselves, knowing that even if our own evil does not seem like evil to us or to others, it does not mean we can be presumptuous in approaching the Lord. So that's what David does. He approaches God with great care. And as we consider our sinfulness, we approach God with great care. David prays that God would condemn the wicked, that he would take care of of them or expunge them from his life. But why can David say that his enemies are so evil? How do we read these kinds of, of psalms, the imprecations against uh, the evil? Well, David can speak this way because he is the Lord's anointed king. Remember that when Saul was still on the throne, what was the one thing that David would refuse to do? He would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. Even though David had himself been anointed, and the people generally wanted David to be their king. David said, God has put Saul on the throne. That's good enough for me. When the Lord wants him to be removed, he will be removed. And so David, as the anointed king sees his enemies coming against him, and he is able to say, to try to attack me is to attack God. And that's why he can speak in this way. I am his chosen possession, so to come against me is to directly come against God. And with that understanding, that's how we can still read these psalms of imprecation as prayers for ourselves. We don't say these things out of a, a bloodthirsty desire for revenge or because we revel in uh, seeing our enemies defeated. But we know that God takes great offense when his people are persecuted. It is a mockery of his name and his glory. So, of course, we say this prayer along with David, and yet we do so humbly. We do so aware of our own sins and aware of our own sinfulness. We do so especially as we consider the law uh, with an awareness of the sins that arise from within us. What, what, where, where are the sins in this psalm? Where, where do they come from? 
They come from the mouth, primarily. And sins of the mouth come from the heart, don't they? Verse 9, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. There's a sense in which this psalm may be seen as a prayer for protection from one's own tongue, one commentator says. From the evil that is within a person, both real and potential. That's the prayer of David. That's what's going on in in his heart. Oh Lord, I see evil all around me. I see those coming against me. They're coming against you. And what I need to remember, I pray that you would protect me, but I also pray that you would protect me from those very same sins because I have sinfulness in my own heart. And so if we're honest about our sinfulness, where's the joy? Where does joy come from? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Where does it come from? It's found in verse 7. Look at verse 7. That's really where we'll focus for the remainder of tonight. Verse 7 of Psalm 5. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Here you find confluence of of many themes of Scripture, but especially two. the, The covenant grace and mercy of God and his enduring holiness to the hearts of his believing people. It's kind of a, it's a mystery, isn't it? We, we come to God, we enter his house through his steadfast love, his covenant mercy, and the response of the believers to fall down before God and his holiness and in the fear of him. By, by way of God's covenant faithfulness, we enter his house. This is the Hebrew word chesed, very famous, sometimes translated as loving kindness, sometimes steadfast love, sometimes mercy. We've had trouble translating it because it, it kind of encapsulates so many rich ideas of forgiveness and fellowship and communion and blessing and life. It's the life of the covenant. And this is how we enter God's house, his abundant covenant faithfulness. Through the abundance of your steadfast love, it says in verse 7. And it's here that we happen upon the reformed distinction of the law and the gospel. And that's what we're thinking about tonight. The law reveals our sinfulness. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Romans chapter 3. The law of God reveals to us that we are sinful and that we are, are miserable. The gospel cleanses us of our sinfulness and gives to us the righteousness of another. The Heidelberg puts it so marvelously in the question, how are you righteous before God? How are you right before God? How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, it says. And then it speaks of the work of the law. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, And of still being inclined toward all evil. So that's a pretty all-encompassing recognition of what the law does in our hearts. We've grievously sinned against all God's commandments. We've never kept any of them perfectly. And we are still inclined towards all evil. That's the law. Nevertheless, it says, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction righteousness and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner 
and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. If only I accepted this gift with a believing heart. See, we are prone to hate God and neighbor, but through God's grace we are reconciled and we are righteous. So through the covenant mercy and grace of God, we enter God's house. The law stands as a a perfect rule of righteousness. And if that were our way to approach God, what would be needed? If we needed to approach God on the basis of the law, what would be needed? Sincere obedience? No, perfect obedience, perpetual obedience, inscrutable obedience. The law says, do this and live. And cursed is anyone who does not continue in all the things written in the law. And so what does it bring us to? It brings us to our need for the gospel, for covenant mercy. What is it when we're we're talking about the the steadfast love of God, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. Well, it brings to our remembrance all of the purposes of God to reconcile us to him. It brings to mind the fact that from all eternity, he has purposed to save us in Christ. From all eternity, the Father covenanting with the Son and the Spirit to accomplish our redemption. The Son covenanting with the Father to to come to earth and to live as a man. To bear guilt and to go all of the way to the cross. It's always the covenant mercy of God which is to be glorified and magnified in our spiritual lives. Without any merit of your own. How is it that you've entered God's house? How did you go through the door? Was it because of anything that you held in your account? Was it because of any shred of righteousness that you had achieved? No, it's the covenant mercy of God. Ephesians chapter 1 says that all things are what? To the praise of his glorious grace. Because it's all of his work. One theologian says this, There is no possible way in which a sinner can be freed from the perpetual obligation of the law as a covenant, but by presenting in the hand of faith to it the infinitely perfect and meritorious righteousness of Christ as a full answer to all its high demands. The law demands many things of us, doesn't it? Perfect, perpetual, inscrutable obedience. So what do we bring to the law? We bring with the hand of faith the perfect righteousness of Christ, the satisfaction of Jesus Christ that frees us from our sin and our misery. Are we sinful? Yes. Are we miserably sinful? Yes. And so how do we have the joy of the Lord as we gaze upon the covenant mercy of God as expressed to us and shown to us in Jesus Christ? The law can demand nothing more from you in appearing before God if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And so how do we make some application then as as we close? If this is true, sinful, miserably sinful, and yet we see the covenant mercy of God, what are the things, the virtues that we are to have in our hearts? Well, first, of course, humility. Humility. With what? Will you come before the Lord? Anything that you have? No, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Humility is simple for a gospel-believing Christian. Because it is only by God's covenant grace, His loving kindness, His mercy, His covenant faithfulness that you entered into His house. Humility first. 
Gratitude second. Gratitude second. Grateful for all that the Lord has done. Here is mystery beyond mystery, isn't it? That the very one whose holiness, whose perfection would stand above us and whose law would condemn us, he is the one who provides our way to be reconciled to him. If you understand that about the gospel of grace, you are grateful. And then finally, joy. Joy. One of the most comforting things about all of this is that, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, we are miserable. Yes, we are wretched. And yet, grace upon grace, God loves you. He treasures you. He has cleansed you. And he makes you his own. And so we, as the psalm says, we exult in him, in verse 11. We take refuge in him, and thus we rejoice. If you take refuge in your own self, there is no reason for joy. There is no reason to rejoice. But if you take refuge in the God who loves you with an everlasting love, who has provided for your redemption and forgiveness, manifested apart from the law, as Romans 3 said, then yes, you can rejoice. But we exult in him. And what does it mean to, to exult in him there, as verse 11 says? What's the, the new covenant twin of exalting in our covenant God? It's boasting in Christ. The end of Galatians, Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, may I never boast. May I never boast except in the one who has paid it all for me. As the hymn writer says, dissolve my heart in thankfulness. Could it be that this Savior has done this for me? Yes, it can. Sinful, miserable, and yet joyful because of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and great God, we do thank you for these glorious truths. We know that our sin is deep and real. We dare not try to deny it. And yet we ask, O oh Father, uh, that you would make us joyful as those who enter into your house through your covenant mercy. We ask uh, that you would be pleased to impress these things upon our hearts as we contemplate them. Uh, tonight and in the coming week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We stand together and sing in response number 352 of the Psalter Hymnal 352.